This is Humanities in Revolt. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Knoll. I teach college courses in philosophy, the humanities, and also women, gender, and sexuality studies. In today's episode of Humanities in Revolt, I share my thoughts on what it means to be good and what it means not to leave our moral goodness up to chance. Specifically, my target is critiquing some of the moral arrogance that I think gets in the way and clouds a genuine opportunity to achieve moral integrity. Being good in 2022, refusing to leave moral goodness to chance. This semester, I began my introduction to ethics course with the uncontroversial observation that people have often treated others pretty terribly. Consider the fact that children as young as seven years old were routinely put to work in factories for 12-hour days during the dawn of industrialism. Journalist and acclaimed author of The Call of the Wild, Jack London, described U.S. child labor in his 1910 book, Revolution, and other essays. He wrote, In the United States, 80,000 children are toiling out their lives in the textile mills alone. In the South, they work 12-hour shifts. They never see the day. Those on the night shift are asleep when the sun pours its life and warmth over the world, while those on the day shift are at the machines before dawn and return to their miserable dens called homes after dark. Many receive no more than 10 cents a day. There are babies who work for 5 and 6 cents a day. Those who work on the night shift are often kept awake by having cold water dashed in their faces. London went on to explain that some children as young as six years old had already gained 11 months of experience working the night shift. And children who are too sick to work were coerced out of bed by hired hands of their employers. Quote, when they become sick and are unable to rise from their beds to go to work, there were men employed to go on horseback from house to house and cajole and bully them into arising and going to work. 10% of them contract active consumption. All are puny wrecks, distorted, stunted, mind and body. End quote. We might also mention the denial of women the right to vote in the United States until 1920. This is, coincidentally, the same year that wife-beating became illegal in all U.S. states. To this, we could add the fact that marital rape was not criminalized in the United States until the second half of the 20th century. From indignation to ethical introspection. Pondering the willingness of others to enslave, torture, brutalize, or simply exploit others in ways that are today understood as clearly wrong tends to generate disgust and indignation. We ask questions like, how could people treat other people so badly? This leads us into historical, cultural, sociological, and psychological analysis of people's past behavior. Even when the aim is to do ethical analysis, people will often slide into social scientific analysis, sidestepping the important questions and solutions suggested by moral philosophers. The presumption is that the evil of these behaviors is quite obvious. Now, to be clear, I think we ought to be disgusted at the thought of the denigration of human dignity. Our feelings, including feelings of disgust, after all, are partly due to our beliefs, 
which function as interpretive lenses guiding our understanding of the world. But it's precisely this appreciation for human dignity that generates concern when our feelings of indignation create a distorted divide between us and the present and others in the immoral past. When I teach ethics, I attempt to flip this scripted interrogation to facilitate introspection and moral humility. In class, I exchange the question of why others behave so badly with the question of how we came to be opposed to racism, sexism, child exploitation, and the like. One inclination is to say that it's just not in our 21st century nature to accept such abuses. But the fact that so many who came before behave this way, did so with cultural support, and that we are the same species and have not biologically evolved in some significant way in the last few centuries, suggests the need for a fuller, deeper reply. I ask students to ponder the source of their morally superior beliefs. I'm not asking why the belief in women's rights, for example, is morally superior to the sexist position. I take it for granted that those of us who are anti-racist, anti-sexist, anti-homophobic, and anti-child exploitation hold positions that are objectively morally superior to the racist, sexist, homophobic, and exploitative opinions. These are my questions. How did we today obtain this superior moral wisdom? Are our beliefs the result, by and large, of our own intellectual heavy lifting? To what extent is our moral goodness as much an accident of social-cultural circumstance as the moral badness of the past was? Are we making adequate effort on an ongoing basis today to critically evaluate our current moral beliefs and choices? Standing on the shoulders of moral giants. This line of questioning tends to facilitate the basic insight that most of us have done comparatively little work and, therefore, deserve rather little credit for many of the superior moral beliefs we happen to hold. By and large, we stand on the shoulders of moral giants who daringly confronted the dominant beliefs of the ages and refused to abide by the doctrines and practices endorsed by popular opinion, tradition, and cultural authority. These ethical innovators courageously consulted their conscience and reason and endeavored to think independently. This awareness ought to concern us. It implies that many who reject mistaken moral beliefs and embrace the superior positions do so on the superficial basis of adhering to dominant social-cultural influence. And this is the same wellspring of the very beliefs we today abhor, refusing to leave moral goodness to chance. One of the first important lessons of moral philosophy is that moral goodness ought not be left up to chance. The error of many who adhered to and perpetuated immorality and injustice in the past began in their abdication of the responsibility of independent thought. The fact that we are all within the mainstream of moral opinion should offer very little comfort given that the moral views today taken for granted as right were once deemed false by the very same cultural common sense that presently endorses them. The point, obviously, is not that we are wrong to be anti-racist, anti-sexist, anti-homophobic, and so forth. 
The point is that the cultural dominance or popularity of these views is coincidental to their moral accuracy. Realizing that we are not so different from those who have actively perpetuated or passively permitted moral wrongs of the past enables us to better pursue moral excellence. We become less confident in our moral purity, less comforted with the fact our moral beliefs fit into the dominant cultural consensus. Looking up, taking moral initiative. We begin to ask important questions like, which of the commonly accepted beliefs and behaviors of today will be viewed as ignorant and unconscionable in the future? What are the unrecognized immoralities of the current age for which future generations will repugnantly judge us as we do those who accepted and participated in male supremacy, white supremacy, homophobia, exploiting children, and labor practices? The arts continue to be an ally in aiding us to step beyond cultural convention to ponder these disquieting questions. The movie Don't Look Up, for example, challenges us all to ponder our moral responsibility for climate catastrophe. We are left wondering whether or not future generations will look upon us today as lacking moral sensitivity and aliveness as we see those who numbly went about their lives as children toiled in factories, as people were enslaved, and as husbands disciplined their wives. Educated people are denied the alibi of ignorance about the devastation that is now and will be wrought from climate change. Perhaps future generations will target their moral revulsion at other elements of our ordinary life. Is it outrageous to imagine a future where people will scornfully wonder how we could go about our lives while homeless people lived in our very midst? Are the moral ramparts that defend our diets against questions about animal suffering and rights built on hollow rationalizations, or will they stand the test of time? Might people one day view with shock our acceptance of the absence of democracy and co-ownership in most workplaces? Might they condemn the ordinary exploitation of adult labor for the profit of many who do not work? These are, of course, open questions. Such questions deserve to be considered for their own sake. But they also challenge us to recognize that being good is too often left up to the whims of cultural authority and popular opinion. Too much of our moral lives up to chance. The solution is to embrace the commandment of ethics to critically evaluate our moral beliefs and lives. Truly differentiating ourselves from those who believed and perpetuated immoral ideologies means opening our lives and thinking to our own critical analysis and honest, good-faith dialogue with others. And while we may not always like what we see, we will at least have the opportunity to develop our moral integrity. Thank you.